We're in a series that is focusing on the theological concept of vocational holiness and then where the rubber meets the road with that, how it practically works out in our lives and what God asks of us in our work. We're looking to bring our work, whatever it is in all its forms, back into the life of God. And I say back because in the modern 20th and 21st century Christian conception, we've kind of bifurcated our lives. I love what you shared, Audrey, in the emotional or inner life space about how we tend to compartmentalize uh, our lives. I think that happens on the macro scale, just like you described on the micro scale. We tend to, um, to separate our lives into our work life, our recreation, our home life, our religious life, and it's the integration of these that is true holiness. Jesus, his burning fire presence in our surrender to him, coming to him and asking him, what does it mean to be me serving you in the space I'm in? That's what we're looking at. The series is called What You Do, and we're in Genesis this morning in chapter 2, picking up where we left off. The Word of God says, thus... The heavens and the earth were finished. So Genesis chapter 1 gives the poetic description of the six days. And then the summary here, all the host of them. And on the seventh day, verse 2, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Did you notice in the first three verses of Genesis chapter 2, his work is referenced three times, all the work that God had done in creation. Our title this morning is Work in Paradise. And you see it in verse 15 when this is summarized, the Lord God, after creating humans in his image, took the man, or he made the man first, right, Adam, and then subsequently Eve, but he took Adam and put him in the garden of Eden to do what? To work it and keep it. And so there that time stamps work, not only as the business and domain of God in creation, but work in the garden, in paradise, before the snake and the apple in the fall. Work in paradise is our subject this morning. And the premise is that in the beginning, there was work. And this would seem obvious except for so much of our faith culture is predicated on this flabby notion. I say flabby because it's not often thought through on a theological level, but this presumption that paradise was work-free and work came as a result of the fall and the curse. That's the way we typically understand it. In fact, excuse me, the Judeo-Christian tradition is distinct among the world's major belief systems in the fact that in the beginning there was work. For example, during the time of Jesus, the two prominent, probably prevalent belief constructs were held by uh, the Egyptians and the Greeks. And in the Greek system of belief, there was paradise that the gods enjoyed, but they had this sort of high drama feud. It was like a, an evening um, 
primetime soap opera, you know, like Dynasty or Dallas from the 80s. The gods were always having some kind of drama. Somebody was getting with someone else's spouse and then they were getting mad. So they had this big battle royal, like a steel cage match. And then the result was humans came about and basically they had to work to clean up the mess that the gods had made. But that wasn't how it was originally designed. And in the Egyptian code, paradise was the natural state, right? That um, we were created in this state of perpetual bliss and relaxation, like a permanent vacation. Oh, thank you, Matt. A permanent vacation. And what happened was humans screwed it up. And as a sort of punishment, they were relegated to work. Those concepts from the beginning of God's people infused and really informed our thinking about work, and they still do today. But here we see in Genesis chapter 2 God's creation of the world and subsequent delegation of responsibility referred to with the same Hebrew word four times. It's the word melakah. And that's only significant because it is a commonplace routine hundreds of times employed in the translation of the Old Testament Hebrew work. It translates most often work as in our occupation or our business, our craftsmanship or that which we do with the bulk of our hours. It is the Hebrew word not for some master craft, not for our magnum opus, or for God's transcendent works. There's different words for those things. But it's the Hebrew word for everyday, ordinary, common work. That's what God did, and that's what he gave the man to do. No sooner do we meet God in Scripture, in fact, than we discover a God who works, this in itself is mind-blowing because many of the concepts of God have him up there lounging and making us effectively his minions, outdoing his bidding. In John chapter 5, Jesus, the revelation of God in human form, said, my father is always working and so am I. Furthermore, we see God not only working, but commissioning workers. No sooner do we meet God than we meet God sharing the work, delegating the tending of the creation to the humans that he made. He commissions them to carry on his work. He made a garden there in verse 15, put the man in it and charged him to work it, Melakah, and keep it. And in chapter 1, he tells humans to fill the earth and subdue it. This notion that he made a garden, but that it needed working and keeping. That he created the earth, but it needed filling, completing, subduing, reigning over, suggests that while all that God made was good, and he pronounced it so, and we looked at that last week, it was far from complete. He created it and then delegated the cultivating of that work to 
the humans he made in his image. It was largely undeveloped at that point. And so his design was to leave the stake a little rare and tag us into the ring to do the grilling, to cultivate and govern his creation. In his insightful book on this subject, Timothy Keller observed the fact that God put work in paradise is startling to us because we so often think of work as a necessary evil or even as a punishment. Yet we do not see work brought into our human story after the fall of Adam as a part of the resulting brokenness brokenness and curse. Rather, it is a part of the blessedness of the garden of God. Work doesn't enter the story after the fall. It's part of the original design. It's not something humans were created to do, but that was beneath God, like where his henchmen or minions, and it's not a necessary evil that came into the picture later. Very often we think of it as sort of part of the paradise lost. Work was a part of the paradise and this is a, a bit of a perspective shift, at least for me. I don't want to go on to tell you why it's important. Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul observes we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared, listen, beforehand that we should walk in them. God didn't prepare the works only after the fall when things went to pot. We screwed up his good design for perpetual vacation. He's like, oh, well, I'll prepare some work for you to do. They were prepared when we were thought of the good work which he gave us to do. Remember in my early adult years, I had a friend who was very motivated in his work. He was one of those people that like always had a pep in his step and we, you know, listened to inspirational um, work motivators and things like that and was like a sort of perma Zig Ziglar. If you didn't feel like going to work on Monday, call him. Really motivated to do his work and to be successful and to make money. But his point wasn't, it didn't seem to be a person of notoriety or even to be wealthy as such, but he would often say his goal was to retire early so that he could get back to what God made him for. And I remember wondering about that and thinking, man, that sounds good, except for I don't know if I would want to not have work starting at 50. Now, maybe that's you and maybe you're loving it. And I say that with no judgment and a little envy. But at the same time, I wonder if he was missing something fundamental. You know, I want to front load the work, work really hard, get really successful so that I can be done with work and get back to what God made me to do. I wonder if there's something missing in that. Genesis chapter one, verse 26, famously, God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth. There are a lot of layers of meaning to this verse, and we talk about it often. We talked about it a few months ago in the context of relationships and the importance of community and being in a small group. God made us in his image, but he said, let us make mankind in our image. 
And that's not the royal we. That's God the Father eternally coexistent with Christ the Son and the Holy Spirit who together live in perpetual community. God said, likewise, let us make mankind to experience that. That's true. Perhaps even more fundamentally, though, than inferring what it means to be made in God's image by the tense of the verb and the number of the pronoun, look at what he goes on to describe as his image. To reign. To be made in God's image is to rule, to exercise dominion, to sit in a place of authority, to reign over the creation. Let's make God in our image. And in this mandate to reign over creation, Keller goes on to observe, we're called to stand in for God here in the world, exercising stewardship over the rest of creation in his place as if we were his vice regents. We share in doing the things that God has done in creation, bringing order out of chaos, creatively building a civilization out of the material of physical and human nature, caring for all that God has made. These are things that he began and invited us to continue to develop and to cultivate. Work evidences our dignity as human beings, perhaps more primarily than any other expression of our being, because it reflects the most essential or among the most essential of God's attributes, authority. God is sovereign. God is in supreme, enduring authority. And being made in his image, he makes clear, reflects that glory. As such, our work reflecting God's glory as a worker himself, not only does work have dignity in itself, but I want you to see this. All kinds of work have dignity. Let me show you how I got there. God's own work is many-layered. It's thought work, for sure. It's design. It's creative it's planning, but it's also manual labor, isn't it? God didn't think it up or draft it like an architect in a cool loft and then send it to the foreman with the calluses on his hands and the hard hat to build it. God got down in the dirt and formed humans with his hands. God, in fact, after shaping us out of dust, in his rendering, in his revealing of his process, likens his creation to a six-day work week. Now, a lot of theological hand-wringing has happened over whether God created the earth in a literal six 24-hour periods or over a metaphorical week that was actually billions of years. I think we might be missing the point. Now, he created it in some length of time, or he created it before he created time. I have no idea. We can ask him about that or just go to the microfiche room in the library in heaven and look it up quickly. But here's the bigger point in my mind. God revealed 
his creative work to us, pulled back the curtain, and he did it in the form of a Hebrew poem, right? Now, whether it's just a poem or whether it's a literal six-day historical depiction, I'll leave you to get your Ken Ham on and the dinosaurs and the, and the behemoth and argue that. Uh, I'm just saying it is a poem. I don't wish it to be a poem. It, in fact, is a poem. And Hebrew scholars will show you the way it functions, kind of like how you can look at a haiku and go, it may be a bad haiku. It may also contain like how to, uh, how to code malware, but it is, in fact, a haiku. This is a poem. So don't stone me if you're like, if you're the, the Ken Ham walk with the dinosaurs crowd, okay? I'm just saying it's a poem. And in that poem, God depicts his creation in the form of a six, not seven day work week, which is what the laborer knows. I work six days and I get one day to recover. God dignifies work entirely and communicates in making us in his image that all kinds of work have dignity. In the words of the 1980s prophet, Dolly Parton, <laughs> working nine to five, what a way to make a living. We meet God in the Old Testament, right? Think about it. And we meet him as a gardener. Then we meet God in the New Testament and we meet him as a carpenter. David, the man after God's own heart, was a shepherd. The rock of the church was a fisherman. And the guy that went on to write two-thirds of the New Testament made camping gear and sold it himself. Physical labor is God's work no less than astrophysics. Running a Fortune 500 company is God's work and so is cleaning its headquarters. No task is too small to reflect the immense dignity of the image of God. I'm reminded of a scene in The Breakfast Club when Brian explains to Bender with some frustration, without trigonometry, there'd be no engineering. And do you remember what Bender said? Without lamps, there'd be no light. You really haven't watched The Breakfast Club recently, have you? I, I lament that for you. And for you millennials, you should watch The Black Breakfast Club because it has vast explanatory power on why you are you. I'm going to say anything else about that. Just watch it. And you'll be like, oh, wow, I just found myself. In 1970, the great, probably the greatest economic mind of at least the second half of the 20th century and the father of modern capitalism, Milton Friedman, wrote an article, a fateful article in the New York Times that summer where he asserted controversially that the sole purpose of a firm is to make more money for its shareholders. And he brought into focus this vague distortion that capitalism has layered onto our work. Now, let me pause and say, I don't think capitalism itself is bad. You may, I don't. I prefer it to the other socioeconomic systems available. I'm not a huge fan of like totalitarianism and centrally planned economies. I'd rather not have somebody tell me what job I'm going to do and how much I'm allowed to make. It's just that capitalism, while not bad, is incomplete as a descriptor of social order and inept as a theology. 
And we in the church have jumped over ourselves to morph capitalism into a theology. And what we've done is distorted God and ourselves in the process. Capitalism has taught us that the goodness of our work is empirically measurable and it's measured by the value that it creates. That our work, therefore, is a means to an end and exists as such on a hierarchy, very specifically laid out. Modern capitalism as an economic system that the church has co-opted as a sort of practical theology, just under the surface of our consciousness perhaps, has installed some pervasive ideas about our work. Are you following me? I know this is a little classroom. This, this comes home. Does this make sense? All right, one is that work is a necessary evil. The only good work is that which helps us make money in order to handle our business. It's a means to another end. And the other is that lower status or lower pay work is an assault somehow on our dignity. That's led to our approaching work as a way of chasing higher wages, prioritizing prestige over the best fit for our skills gifts, and disposition. Even deprioritizing any sense or capacity for fulfillment in our work to the opportunity for financial gain and professional advancement. The result, I think, is that we have allowed ourselves to stigmatize certain kinds of work while elevating others. Perhaps we've not done it consciously, but I think it, it's in the air we breathe. It's in the water we swim in. And the way that plays out in the life of the family of God is classism. We talk a lot about how in Christ we are one. And the work of reconciliation is to break down walls, even walls that are subtle or subconscious, like racism. There is a similar division wall that too often is allowed to exist in the life of the family of God that can be described by classism, the haves and the have-nots, the people who are something and going somewhere and the people who just get by. And this is an abomination to Christ and his family and his image in which we are created. Another is striving. This inner drive to be more, have more, achieve more, earn more. And then with that, the accompanying angst, the lack of peace, that damning reality that we are the most prosperous society in the history of the world and also the most medicated, the most ill at peace with ourselves. And friends, this collectively is settling for far less than the goodness of God. And I think it has to do with how we understand our and one another's work. God's vested interest in our work and our reflecting his image forces a question that seems so self-evident as to be perhaps at first insulting. And that is, what does it mean to do good work? 
You know, that's a question that has a lot of different answers. Work that produces good value. Work that is meaningful, like has a conscience. How about work that's morally upright and not suspect in its dealings? That's good work, right? Work that's done with excellence. I think Scripture makes clear two simple, pervasive descriptors of good work. What does it mean to do good work? One, Scripture teaches plainly, work wholeheartedly. Whatever you do, and this is where we got the name for this series, Colossians 3 teaches, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. And in a fallen world, work can be frustrating and exhausting, even though it is ordained and dignified by God. That is part of the curse, that he made work bitter at times, hard. He said, by the sweat of your brow will you eke out a living. And so we can easily, from this, jump to the conclusion that work is to be avoided or simply endured. Wholehearted work means willing work, working willingly at whatever we do, not just at the job that we've been working hard to get to, but at the entry-level job, at the summer job that we're just doing to earn a little money to buy pizza when we get back to college next fall, at the job we had to take because we were unemployed and unemployment was running out, at the job that we feel is beneath our dignity, work willingly. And then the second has to do with wholeheartedness vis-a-vis or or as contrasted with excellence. Often those are viewed synonymously, and it became in the 90s and in the zeros a very common value in the Christian world to do things with excellence. Every church had excellence as one of its five values. Every Christian business person viewed excellence as their good-hearted aim at representing Christ. Here's the problem with excellence. Excellence is an A. Pretty good is a B. Passing is a C. Marginal is a D. Failing is an F. Our culture gets that intrinsically. Excellence says do A work, be the best, but not everybody can do A work. Can we just say it? No matter how much R. Kelly you listen to, you can't fly. Wasn't that R. Kelly? Where landed him, by the way. He'd like to fly, I'll bet. I'm just saying, I'm sure he wishes it were true right now. You, you mean there, one of the human realities is embracing our limitations. Like, you think you can do these things, Nemo, for oddly the second week in a row. You can't. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we can't all be excellent. And you know what that creates? It creates this pressure this pressure cooker environment, and this comparison. I want to be like the kid that gets the A. I want to be like the worker that gets the promotion. I want to be like the fast tracker. I want to be like the one that gets the big bonus. But I don't. I got a small bonus. B plus is the best I can do. And excellence as a Christian value says, there's no place in the kingdom of God for you. You aren't made in Christ's image. And I think that is garbage. I think excellence is a perversion of God's value of wholeheartedness. Wholeheartedness says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. If all your heart's an A and you get an A minus, you're not honoring Christ. You're slacking. If all your heart and the best you can do is a C plus, man, that honors Christ. 
And so here's the big difference. Let me just make it plain. Excellence is about us and our performance. Wholeheartedness is about Christ who formed my heart and looks at it. Okay, so what does it mean to do good work? One is work wholeheartedly and the other is work incarnationally. We are his body. We bear his image. His incarnation began when he came to the earth and manifested when he ascended and then empowered us to be his body. Colossians 3 also says, and so whatever you do, work at it with all your heart and whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. As his representative in cultivating and tending creation, our work is not a means to an end of survival or provision or advancement. Incarnational work sees it as intrinsically valuable because we are the representatives of Christ. We are filling, subduing, and tending his creation whether we're conceiving of a corporation or cleaning its headquarters. And no work is beneath your dignity. No work is beneath your dignity. Do you remember Bill Gates? His book, The Road Ahead, said, flipping burgers is not beneath your dignity. Your grandparents had another word for it, opportunity. No work is beneath your dignity. Whatever you do, rejects culture's hierarchy of value in our work. The prestige of your work does not give you dignity. Please hear this. How humans value your work does not give you dignity. The image of God in you gives you dignity. So if you're in a high power job and you are an A student and you're crushing it, crush it, do it with all your heart. But don't mistake that success for what makes you glorious. It's our work itself that reflects God's image. And as such, it is an indispensable component in a meaningful life. Our work is a gift from God. Remember a friend who did wealth management for billionaire families, and particularly his work, was working with their heirs and planning for a state transfer. And he said, the trust fund recipients of billionaires' estates were almost categorically train wrecks. They'd never worked a day in their life. And he said, their lives were a thousand variations on one theme, a signature lack of purpose and the self-worth that derives from it. Work wholeheartedly, work incarnationally. Would you stand with me? 1 Corinthians 15, 58, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture says, Therefore, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in him is not in vain. Your labor is in him and it's never in vain. Always, in every circumstance, whatever you do, give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. 
We want to pray over some of you this morning. One of our elders, Jim Howie, is going to join me, who's been helping me think through this subject. Jim works in the Daniel's got a mic for you there. Jim works in the professional space and has been very successful, and yet God's put it on your heart as a part of the expression of your calling in Christ to trumpet and, and teach this idea. And you've been teaching it to me and our staff, and we're going to do an equipping course after the one that Daniel and Audrey talked about. Once this series finishes and that one, EHS, is complete, it's going to be on our work in applying these ideas, and Jim's going to help lead that. But this morning, what we want to do and over the next couple of weeks is pray a commissioning prayer over some of you. And then we'll do it over some others of you in each of the successive weeks. So this morning, we want to pray over those of you whose work specifically is in the service industries, retail, food service, the commercial and industrial trades, teachers, law enforcement, firefighters, and other first responders. And so here's what I'd like to ask. Um, if that's you, we're not going to do anything to embarrass you. We just want to pray for you and bless you. If that's you, if you identify or interpret, can interpret your work in one of those lanes or one of those categories, would you put your hand in the air so we can see you? Again, service industries, retail, food service, commercial trades, education, law enforcement, and first responders, firefighters, EMTs, and such. If you're in one of those spaces, it's possible that you're doing work that is of great value in society, of great necessity and esteem. And I mean, if teachers are any example, that we would all say uh, are compensated vastly less than what they're worth and what they're worth to us, at least to us who have kids and are so grateful to all of you. That's true of law enforcement and of so many others. So if that's you, just put your hand in the air and keep it there for a second. First, can we all thank God for these folks? Can we appreciate yeah. them? We're so grateful for you. Now, keep your hand in the air just for one more minute, uh, and we're going to pray over you. So if you're standing around one of these sisters or brothers, or if you're not, but there's not someone standing around them, would you just kind of get out of your seat and move around, and let's a bunch of us just gather around them, lay a hand on their shoulder, and we're going to pray for them. So it's not just Jim praying for them. It's you and I praying for them. Let's all pray together in faith. Can we do that? We've got someone around each one of our brothers and sisters in these professions. Great, Jim, you want to lead us in prayer? Yeah. Lord God, we uh, thank you that you are with us. Thank you for it, that you're with each of these folks. Um, we don't understand uh, sometimes why you would ask us to be your co-laborers, but you do, and we are grateful for work, and we're grateful for the privilege of um, reigning and working to help this world work. Lord, we pray uh, for each of these folks, for each of these, all of our congregation in each of these spheres, that you would fill them to the full, strengthen them with power, fill them with your spirit to walk in tomorrow 
to their work as your representatives, as your missionaries there. We pray you'd give them eyes to see the dignity of their work, eyes to see the work you would have them do tomorrow, this week, this year. Uh, give them eyes to see the people around them, the customers they're serving. Give them a vision for how they can do their work uh, with their whole hearts in ways that would honor you, in ways that make the world work. God, we just thank you for the privilege of co-laboring with you. Bless these folks, send them out, strengthen them with your power, through your spirit and their inner beings, that they may be filled up to all your fullness, that they may shine like stars as they hold out the word of life. Bless them, Lord. Yes. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you are with us wherever we go. Thank you for each of these folks, Jesus. Yes. We love you. Amen. Father, we speak a blessing over these, our brothers and sisters, from your word. Whatever they do, just pray this in agreement, whatever they do, may they work at it with all of their hearts. And may they do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. And may they stand firm. Let nothing move them off kilter. May they give themselves always and fully to the work of the Lord and know that their labor in you is not in vain. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.